here we go. Okay, welcome to episode three of Growing Down Podcast. Uh, today we are joined by Steve McIntosh. Hi, Steve. Hi, Jeremy. And Ryan and Matt, uh, would you guys want to, or first Matt actually, um, Matt's going to give a little intro for you, Steve, before we before we jump into questions. So, Yes, uh, so Steve McIntosh is here. He is the president of the Institute for Cultural Evolution, which focuses on political problems that are either being caused or exasperated by America's ongoing culture war. He identifies a problem of hyperpolarization as the wicked problem of America. About three year, years ago, Steve uh, and his colleagues decided they needed a substantial book that would explain from a developmental, developmental perspective how to decrease America's dysfunctional political condition. And he's been at work on uh, development of politics. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Steve. Thank you, Matt. Pleasure to be with you. Excellent. Fantastic. So um, I think Ryan had the first question. Yeah, well, um, Steve, it's great to have you on. I've been a fan of your work and I've read all of your books. I just finished wow. your uh, latest Thank book. Um, and I, of course, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of like virtue ethics and for a long time I've been really wanting integral to integrate virtue ethics and incorporate that more. So I really appreciate your work in that regard too. Um, I'm just thinking for a start, can you just give a, a short summary of um, your latest book and some of the polarity, uh, the values integration method that you talk about there? Sure. Well, the, the, the thrust of developmental politics, how America can grow into a better version of itself, my latest book, uh, is focused on how America can grow out of hyperpolarization, right? Hyperpartisan hyper political polarization is a problem that has occurred as a result of the growth, the evolution of American culture over the last 50 years. And much of that growth has been predicated on the emergence and maturation of the progressive postmodern worldview. So the book uh, argues that the solution to this, uh, to the to the the bitter culture war that is making our politics dysfunctional and uh, you know more dysfunctional than normal, I should say, uh, and really affecting every uh, almost every section of our public life, that um, that this is a a, a wicked problem for which uh, none of the existing major forms of culture in America are equipped to really address. And so I argue in the book that uh, if we're going to foster or cultivate or garden for further cultural evolution, then we need to understand culture better. We need a politics of culture that can recognize that the, the hyperpolarization which is poisoning our politics is arising upstream from Washington, D.C., or normal uh, politics as they're, as they're typically conducted in, in America in its history. And so that new politics of culture comes from understanding um, the basic units of culture, which I argue in the book are worldviews, values-based agreements that cohere in a kind of an intersubjective ontological space, right? What um, followers of Ken Wilber would recognize as the lower left quadrant. And that these structures, these worldview structures uh, are real entities. They're not just forms of psychology. 
that while they certainly supervene on people's minds and are made up of, of conscious agreements or even unconscious agreements about what's good, true, and beautiful, these worldviews have a, a kind of a systemic continuity, a systemic uh, uh, life of their own, and that, that recognizing these worldview structures in their intersubjective uh, systemicity, if you will, uh, a, a, that category of analysis for politics and culture is brought alive when we recognize that there's, uh, that there's a throughput of energy in these systems that is, the, the, just like biological systems, all, all, all living things have a throughput of energy, n- nutrition, you know, sunlight, oxygen, um, and that this throughput is what sustains the dynamic continuity of systems in the face of entropy. And something similar, perhaps even analogous, is occurring with uh, these worldview uh, structures, that they have a metabolism of values. And so bringing in, in the second part of the book, uh, a, a theoretical understanding of the energetic properties of value, how values uh, can um, create uh, psychological energy or psychic energy, how they uh, can contribute to the the formation of political will or the frustration of that formation. Uh, so there, the, part one of the book is um, uh, designed to be an accessible, pragmatic application of, of uh, the integral understanding of cultural evolution, at least my version of it, um, whereby I describe the worldviews in detail, not so much as psychological structures, but as historical emergence in culture. And I trace the history of the emergence of modernity as a modernism, as, as a worldview structure, and then the subsequent emergence of this progressive postmodern worldview, and how each one of these worldviews, including the traditional worldview that precedes them both, have very important uh bedrock values that are crucial to the overall health of our uh, collective cultural ecosystem. And each one of these worldviews also have shortcomings and pathologies that in some ways are responsible for the culture war that we're in, because each worldview sees the others primarily for their pathologies, which causes them to have identity issues. And, you know, there's there's a, a big explanation there that I'll skip over for the moment. But the first part of the book by the fourth chapter, offers a pragmatic uh, uh, application of this way of understanding worldviews and cultural evolution by uh, pointing to a a, a practical method, a stepwise method uh, adapted from uh, polarity theory to show how uh, creating a a container, adopting a perspective that can see kind of outside and above these major worldviews and appreciate all of them for their upsides and their downsides rather than being embedded in one of them to the, you know, the exclusion of the others. Adopting this outside and above perspective, seeing each worldview for its goods and its bads, allows us then to uh, create a sort of a deliberative container of challenge and support whereby the, um, the, the positives of each worldview, the upsides of each worldview, can, within that agreement container, that deliberative relationship of challenge and support, whereby the pathologies of each worldview can be uh, ameliorated, or uh, uh, that that the worldviews that perpetrate their own particular pathologies, that those worldviews can take responsibility for those pathologies, because ultimately the elimination of those pathologies in their, uh, or their maximum amelioration, let's say, they can't be entirely eliminated, but 
but the maximum amelioration of the respective pathologies of each worldview can be done most effectively by that worldview itself. But each of the worldviews are kind of have a reluctance or an unwillingness to address their own pathologies. And that's one of the most valuable things that a deliberative container of challenge and support between the three major worldviews can accomplish, which is in a sense the, um, you know, the method of, of developmental politics is, is doing that both at a macro scale, you know, culturally in the media as, as a, a, a political perspective that can rise and become influential and also at the micro scale within um, individual relationships and within individual issues. So this method of values integration that's outlined in the book um, is, as I explained at the end of chapter four, is, is really just a kind of a, um, a method that tries to distill the essential steps or moments of the application of integral consciousness, uh, such that integral consciousness itself is what enacts the perspective that makes this method possible. But for people who have not yet gained the perspective itself, laying it out um, a little bit and showing the steps, even though those steps require integral consciousness for their effective enactment, uh, nevertheless, uh, it, it, I, I hope and I have found that people find it helpful to sort of uh, uh, illuminate those steps, the sort of the steps of, of polarity, you know, management, if you will. Um, and so those uh, those those steps, however, it's a little bit like pictures of the horse running. You know, like they never understood how a horse ran, what what order uh, the horse put their feet down because they're going too fast. And then when uh, film was invented and then they could have still frames so they could see for the first time the order of the horse's steps of their hooves. And, and so what I tried to do is take the fluid process of dialectical evaluation and, and uh, values integration that integral consciousness makes possible and take still frames of the horse running, if you will. Um, and that still doesn't convey the fluidity and the beauty of a running horse, but at least allows us to see it a little bit more closely and, and analyze it more concretely. Um, then in part two of the book, so part one is called uh, Toward a New Politics of Culture. Part two of the book is called Toward a, uh, a New Political Philosophy of Purpose and Progress. Uh, and there I bring in a, um, a, a theory of value energy or um, uh, sort of the, the magnetic attraction of values upon purpose uh, at every level of its manifestation. And then that leads to an understanding of the political significance of transcendence or greater than self-interest and how that is um, itself in an interdependent polar relationship with self-interest. That is, self-interest and greater than self-interest cohere and are interdependent, and each side of those of that polarity of interests, each side needs the other to maximize its own value-creating capacity. Um, and then after describing this theory of value energy, I then apply it uh, by talking about strategies for cultivating cultural evolution. I mean, it's political philosophy, but I do try to make it applicable and, and, and reduce it to a method wherever I can. And so I offer in chapter seven methods for cultivating cultural evolution, how it can be gardened for, how it can be fostered, how to think about it. And so I describe three basic approaches to thinking about how to, you know, make help America grow into a better version of itself. Then uh, I bring in a chapter on virtue ethics, uh, as you mentioned, Ryan, and, and I have some new theoretical applications of that. Um, and, and in some ways, that's sort of the, the uh, it's like my pet 
uh, in the book, chapter eight. I, I love the, the virtue ethics, whether they can gain traction culturally, whether they have the potential to become popular. Uh, I advocate for that, but, um, you know, there's certainly not a lot of evidence. But, but anyway, I, I make the argument that virtues, that the development of virtues and a practice of character strength uh, is an, an essential part of raising consciousness and cultural evolution, that, it, that it's an important supplement to the evolution of values. And then in the final chapter, I, uh, I make the argument for progress and how framing uh, uh, progress in our civilization within a, a theoretical construct that, that appreciates and, and recognizes the authentic progress that is um, uh, the, 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 the emergence of positive creativity, right? That, that it value something more keeps coming from something less and that this is an in, in, uh, undeniable uh, demonstration of progress in evolution overall. Uh, I try to address the critiques of progress, uh, both civilizationally as well as uh, cosmically. Um, but I argue that, uh, that we need a collective sense of, of the possibility of progress um, if we're going to maintain um, the civilizational momentum you know, that we've achieved so far. And... Uh, address the significant pathologies that have arisen and threaten us from that very growth. So, and then I have an appendix at the end where I um, argue about social ontology, and that's pretty wonky and probably not appropriate for a podcast, but uh, that's kind of a uh, mouthful regarding the book. Well, that's a wonderful uh, summary, Steve. Thank you. That's awesome. Great. Yeah, so maybe we could get a little bit into um, uh, one of the first of the 15 points that you shared with us in that article about the book in, in the sense of these conflicting, hyper-polarized worldviews, right? Because somebody who's, who's just listening to this and, and maybe is new to your work and maybe even new to integral theory, um, they're, they're kind of looking at the American landscape and seeing, you know, <laughs> uh, for example, very concrete examples, Mitch McConnell you know, saying no to the bills and then Pelosi saying yes to that and, and days are going by and they're, they finally come to an agreement. But there, there's a sense of a deep hyperpolarization, which is a great word. I think it's, it expresses exactly what's going on in that sense. So how do we make sense of these um, progressive worldviews, right? We have the Bernie campaign. We have the rise of, you know, progressive Democrats. Um, they're very vocal, they're very loud, they're very, um, you know, I think there's the Justice Democrats that just created an organization a few years ago. So, so they have more of an institutional presence all of a sudden. And they're taking a very hard stance in, in terms of um, what kind of values we need to be enacting right now, right? And then we also have the sort of conservative democratic or, or centrist democratic position or centrist position. And then we also have the right. So we have these, these deeply entrenched polarities going on right now in culture. So how, how do we make sense of that, right? And then maybe as, a, as an example, a way to kind of dig into this, what would it look like to kind of bring individuals from these different polarizations together in the kind of work that you're talking about in the book? Sure. Wow. Well, that's a comprehensive question. Um, so let me try to break it apart. Um, so first, let me say that, that um, polarity is part of the natural and dynamic behavior of value. And because value itself is, is subject to evolution by steps, 
the, um, the, 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 the steps form poles, which, uh, which in order to cohere as a structure which can build on itself, like all forms of sustainable evolution, then these, these dynamic polarities between the steps or between these poles of development um, are, are a natural and indeed when they function properly, a healthy and necessary part of the cultural ecosystem, right? There's like a dynamic. And so we want to preserve the, the polarities in their healthy form um, so that they can help shape and charge the values which make up these internal structures of culture. Um, but the thing about this dynamic, these dynamic systems of, of polarity is that they can become stuck, right? They can either function in a healthy way or they can become uh, stuck and they can fly apart in which case they um, prevent growth and indeed can eventually lead to decay. So, so that's the first thing to say about the polarities. That's why I talk about hyperpartisan polarization or hyperpolarization as an indication of a stuck polarity rather than a healthy functioning one. You know, the idea is not that we're going to eliminate these polarities, nor do we want to, because that would be uh, unhealthy for our cultural ecosystem in, in another way. Okay, so then when I've got a diagram in the book or... Um, a graphic that that uses the analogy of geological strata, and so I I argue that if we're going to get to a, a cultural understanding, if we're going to drill down to the level of culture where the conflict really lies, then we need to recognize the the difference between these different layers or, or political strata, right? So at the top are the candidates, right? Below that are political parties. Below the next layer, below that are you know interests and issues, right? And 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 then below that are what I call bedrock values, right? And these are these are the um, these are the I don't know I don't want to call them things. They're not really substances. They're more agreements about what's good, true, and beautiful. All these bedrock values are uh, are the substance of culture. So worldviews, right? What are worldviews? Just like um, if we, if, we, if we use the analogy of biology, right, then the biological analogy, analogy can only go so far, and I, I don't want to conflate the realm of cultural evolution with biological evolution. While they're all forms of evolution, they're distinct in their methods of advance and in their, the nature of what they're about. But, but nevertheless, we can see that the way biological organisms emerge is that it starts with the simplest cells, right, and then cells form, they, they, they uh cohere into larger, more complex organisms. Those then become systems, organelles, right? And so that you have a complex organism like the human body, it's made up of, what, trillions of cells? And so we could see something similar regarding worldviews. That is, people make agreements, and, and agreements form intersubjective structures or systems. So, for example, every word in our language is an agreement about meaning. And while there are, the words exist in the physical world through the sounds of the words and through their, uh, you know, their, their writing on a page or you know, on a screen, the, the substance, the real um, power of words is, is in the meaning uh, that, that they stand for, the agreement that they stand for. And just like cells make up, you know, trillions of cells make up the human body, trillions of agreements cohere into larger systems. They have a dynamic... Um, emergent capacity to be systemic and to act in this way and, and that the 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 intersubjective structures that that arise from the agreements especially about values values form 
more complex intersubjective entities than other kinds of agreements. I mean, certainly language is a complex intersubjective entity. But a worldview certainly rests on language and, and other important agreement structures. But what makes worldviews paramount in my estimation is that they, uh, they form people's identity, right? That, that it's not just a matter of pointing to the way to the good life, although that's an important process, the important thing that worldviews do. But worldviews, you know, they, they provide identity and they, um, they give people a sense of what's important. And in that sense, uh, worldviews are a, a very important part of everyone's consciousness, right? So, so there are some people who are disengaged from culture, who don't think about their values and who don't engage uh, in the systemic participation in, in worldviews very much. Other people identify with certain worldviews, you know, intensely, like they're, they're caricatures of those worldviews. But I think for most Americans, these different worldviews, the, the three major ones that I describe in detail in developmental politics, um, the traditional worldview consisting of, you know, all the different religions and, and traditional perspectives, the, 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 the worldview of modernity, right, the modernist worldview, and then in the last 50 years, this progressive postmodern worldview, for many Americans, these worldview structures sound, uh, what I say, more in chords than in single notes, right? So somebody could be a traditionalist on Sunday when they're in church, and then when they get to the office on Monday morning, they have a more modernist consciousness, or you know, they, they switch to modernist values. You know, or people could be in their communities very postmodern, but when they go to work, they kind of are in the battle of modernity. So. Uh, it's important not to recognize these structures as sort of types of types of people or types of consciousness more as sort of types of consciousness within people. They're, they're forms of cultural agreement structures that supervene within people's consciousness and provide their identity, and people use them in either singular or in combination, but they're the basic units of culture. Um, again, I have a large argument, but um, I've already said a lot about that. Now, regarding um, the, the, the current political situation, you know, if we think about Mitch McConnell or we think about Nancy Pelosi or we think about any of the, the current drama uh, in American politics, looking toward the bedrock values that are going on beneath that drama, beneath those layers, right, of the candidates and the parties and the interests, um, at the level of, of bedrock values, um, we can see this larger uh, uh kind of cultural struggle for the identity of the soul of America that is the existential challenge of the progressive postmodern worldview. So I'll just kind of refer to it as postmodernism for short. But for listeners, it's important to say that this is within integral discourse, postmodernism is kind of a defined term. It means more than simply, um, you know, critical academia or uh, cultural Marxism as it's been straw manned by people like Jordan Peterson that this progressive worldview is, is a, a, a robust form of culture that contains many different factions and elements, um, but it does cohere as a worldview that could be compared and contrasted with modernity and traditionalism. So we can see that this, this struggle, indeed the, the polarization, the hyperpolarization that we're experiencing is a, a kind of predictable natural result of the momentous emergence of, of this postmodern worldview over the last 50 years, right? It, it, 
as I explain in the book, we can trace it back to the, the, the beginning, right? As soon as modernity was established, right? We, we have the beginning of the, the romanticism movement and the transcendentalists and those who are questioning modernity, right? I won't recount the entire history as it's um, laid out in the book, but beginning in the 1960s, of course, we have this sort of renaissance of, of 60s culture, which is the, the, the emergence of this postmodern worldview as a worldview in its own right. It sort of finally breaks with modernity. And rather than being a, uh, a contrarian culture within modernity, it becomes its own worldview. And then that matures uh, in the 70s and, and uh, goes underground a bit during the 80s and the Reagan years and then has another fluorescence in the 90s and continues to gain uh, political power. As, as I explained in the book, um, every one of these worldviews, we can see a, a general pattern, right? These general patterns require, you know, as Ken Wilber says, orienting generalization. So we can't put too much weight on these generalizations, but they're nevertheless useful for understanding this level of bedrock values. And so we see that this, this general pattern is that <clears throat> there's a dialectical alternation in the emergence of worldviews from an emphasis on a, a communitarian solidarity and then an individualistic uh, emergence, whereby you know the emphasis is on the expression of the self or the sacrifice of the self for the greater good, right? And, and this is explained in part two of the book in greater detail in my analysis of value physics. But, but for purposes of just understanding worldviews, we have we have the traditional worldview, which is a, you know a religious worldview, which is very communitarian. It's very much about the sacrifice of the self for the sake of the whole. And then we have in the Enlightenment the emergence of modernity, which tacks in the opposite direction toward individuality, right? I mean, one of the greatest uh, emergences of modernity in terms of values are these liberty values, as I as I explain or characterize them, the the value of um, the, the, the basic human rights, right? The, as the French called them during the French Revolution, the rights of man and the citizen. And these are the basic freedoms, freedom of religion, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, due process of law, and a certain degree of economic freedom. Right? These are all individually based values. And yet, these, these liberal values of modernity um, have, throughout their history, in a sense, relied on the communitarian values supplied by the underlying traditional culture from which modernity emerges, right? That traditional culture, um, it, it's, its own cultural achievements provide the platform upon which liberal values can take root and become healthy. Because without those traditional mores and social norms, then the, the intense individuality of modernity and its liberal values um, can become unstable and and. So modernity relies on traditional values. It borrows the social capital of the communitarian values of traditionalism, right? And through, throughout most of its history, despite the fact that, that modernity and traditionalism have been in conflict, there's also been a degree of, of, a, of a, a cultural detente between them, a, a cultural truce, as I explain in the book, and that this cultural truce lasted um, throughout the 19th century and, and most of the 20th century, but as uh, traditionalism lost its cultural authority through a variety of factors, um, postmodernity emerges as a, a kind of an alternative communitarian system of values. 
And so you get this tug of war between the previously prevailing communitarian system of traditionalism, which supplied morality of modernity to the extent that it could, and then this new moral system uh, supplied by the postmodern worldview, which is, in a sense, for many modernists, has become the substitute form of communitarian solidarity uh, that, that helps uh, uh, supplement, or, or the new truce, you know, the, the, the values of modernity, you know, many modernists are, are um, no longer uh, be, they're no longer willing to be in an agreement or a detente with traditional values. They reject traditional values. And so the, the moral social norms provided by the progressive postmodern worldview are, uh, you know, an attractive alternative for many. So there are some, of course, who are uh, center of gravity and identity is deeply invested in progressive uh, postmodern values. But there are many other modernists, liberal modernists, we might call them, who still are very connected to modernity, but who find progressive postmodern morality more attractive and, and uh, spiritually fragrant, if you will, than traditional morality. And so that's why, for example, we can see that, that most traditionalists vote on the right, right? That the traditional, while there's certainly some traditionalists who are Democrats, you know, for 80% of evangelicals, for example, uh, voted for Trump in 2016, and so the, the traditionalism is fairly unified in its uh, in its position in support of Republican politics. Likewise, almost all progressive postmodernists identify on the left, right? That is, there we could, might identify a few progressive postmodernists who are confused Republicans, but they're not politically significant, right? So, so traditionalism is is um, is is well established on the right. Progressive postmodernism has solidarity on the left, but modernity is currently divided, right, between Republicans and Democrats. Maybe it's 60-40, right? But, but still, modernity is being pulled apart because it relies upon the, this theory of the communitarian values being necessary. Half of modernity is, reta is retained its, its allegiance with traditional values, and the other half is being pulled toward progressive values, which is why modernity is split, and these other two worldviews are not you know, politically speaking. So understanding worldviews uh, and, and giving them some ontological status, right? They're not just convenient or contrived categories of analysis. They have their ontological intersubjective entities with a metabolism of value that, you know, provides identity and guides people politically and socially. So Getting coming to grips with the ontology, the intersubjective ontology of worldview is a very important step in um, a political philosophy which can wrestle with the cultural realities which challenge us at the moment. I mean, we always joked, like for the last twenty years, that this integral perspective was a it was a solution to a problem that people didn't know they had. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, the last thing you want to know is that you know, oh, we have a new worldview for you. How'd you like that? You know, people don't want a new worldview. They want their worldview to triumph, which is understandable. But now we have Donald Trump, and we have this hyperpartisan political polarization, which I argue he's, in a sense, a symptom of, at least partially. And so until we deal with the cultural schism that has brought us Trumpism, we're not going to be able to effectively leave that ugly chapter of our history behind. So um, uh, understanding that Trump has been sent by traditionalists and their modernist allies as a kind of a, of a cultural bodyguard, right? In other words, the, 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 the success of 
postmodern culture, the rise of it, has created this backlash, right, which, which uh, certainly can be attributed to many deplorable factors like racism, but not all of Trump's supporters are racists, I would argue. Many of them feel threatened in their identity by progressive postmodernism and have voted for Trump accordingly, even though that may be folly. Um, and so then this, this, this backlash of Trumpism has then, in a sense, since 2016, um, empowered progressive postmodernism, right? The Me Too movement and identity politics. Many elements of, of the progressive worldview have been energized and uh, have emerged, right? So prior to Trump, in some ways, the most visible, authentically postmodern center of gravity uh, politician was the congressman Dennis Kucinich, right? But now, I mean, Bernie Sanders was there, but he wasn't really, you know, he, he wasn't on the radar of many of us. Um, but now, of course, we have Bernie Sanders, who's, a, I think, a, an excellent representative of, of progressivism. And we have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the, the squad. And so progressive postmodern politics have, in a sense, become way more visible than they used to be. Um, and that has both shown how uh, shown many of the beautiful values that they represent, many of the, the forms of um, concern which those values bring which America didn't adequately have or recognize before. Um, but this same um, empowerment of postmodernism has also, uh, in some ways, exposed its pathologies more, more directly, right? Every one of these worldviews naturally has, has dignities and disasters. And so as postmodernism becomes more powerful culturally and politically, um, its, 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 um, its pathologies become more evident to the rest of the culture. And as long as the rest of the culture is stuck in this, um, in you know this, if you'll pardon the term, first tier perspective, when they look at postmodernity, they they primarily only see its pathologies. They only see the threatening parts. So the job of developmental politics, at least one of them, is to uh, in some ways champion the cause of progressivism, but in a way that can bring on board much larger politically significant forces that are that are within modernity and even traditionalism. Uh, and um, and understanding the 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 emergence the cult, the structure of cultural emergence and the way that that val the role that values play in that evolutionary system systemic structure is is a a new opportunity to contribute to political progress. Hmm. Yeah. Before I open it up to uh, Ryan and Matt, I just wanted to to mention a, a few a few thoughts. Um, as you were, thank you. That was a very clear explanation, I think, of a lot of these ideas. Um, so, uh, let's see. I, I feel like right now the left, as bifurcated as it is, um, you mentioned is sort of, would you, would you say it is kind of growing up in the sense of there's more people who are voting on the progressive left? There are more ambitions, you know, a, a progressive left president, you know, Bernie Sanders. So suddenly the left has had to take on a position that requires them to reach out across different values, different worldviews. And I, I started to hear this, um, you know, uh, the three of us have been following the Bernie campaign. We have admittedly been Bernie supporters. Um, but, but some of the difficulties we've seen arise during Bernie's campaign, especially after Biden won uh, South Carolina, has been this, well, how do we reach other worldviews? How do we actually reach other values, right? Um, that's been part of the issue in, in sort of, okay, well, the left is great at speaking to itself, but how do we actually reach more moderates? 
how do we reach across uh, across the table to the cable news networks, which have different kind of institutional biases with different values, and voters are basing their vote on those things. So these are the kind of questions I'm seeing beginning to arise in progressive circles. So I wonder if you would see this as a kind of a, a growing up moment in terms of the left and needing to actually kind of realize that we can't just vote ourselves um, into the presidency, right? We actually have to bridge the gap with different worldviews and different communities and actually find ways to translate our values into something that they would also value and vote for. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. Um, all right, well, so when we when we look at culture as, as evolving, right, when we see it as a developmental trajectory, this, we go from 2D to 3D, right? And that is, we begin to see things we couldn't see before. And so one of the things we can see is that as every one of these worldviews emerges in history, it, it goes through a series of steps, right? So at first it emerges by pushing off against what came before, by breaking out of the pathologies of a previous worldview, by solving problems that worldview can't solve, right? So, so we have what we might call traditional or in the jargon red culture, which is sort of always at war and, and, and gnarly, and, and that's, a, that's a very problematic life condition that requires greater social solidarity to solve. And so the traditional worldview emerges by pushing off against the, at the pathologies of red, by solving it to a certain degree those pathologies. And so there's, there's this kind of um, um, this breaking off moment, this emergent moment. And then there's a, what we might call a season of synthesis, whereby that worldview comes in its, into its own and uh, uh, achieves many of the things that it sets out to achieve. But as those, um, as those achievements become established, then it moves, in, moves into a more static version of itself, whereby the, the problems that are associated with the very achievements of that worldview begin to appear that create existential problems that can't be solved at the level that created those problems, as Einstein famously observed, right? So we, so we have traditionalism succeeding in creating social solidarity in a civilization to some degree, some order, um, but then we have oppression and, and stagnation, right? So modernity breaks out of that, right? You know, with, with the revolutionary fervor of, of liberty, equality, fraternity, right? There's this moment where it's pushing off against the oppression of feudalism and kings and the whole structure. And then modernity goes through its phase where it's creating the great enrichment, where it's, it's, it's uh, the cultures that have adopted modernity become um, significantly more prosperous than anything that traditionalism could supply. But as modernity gains traction and becomes established, it creates gnarly existential problems that it's not capable of solving, right? Like uh, gross inequality and environmental degradation and the proliferation of uh, world-destroying uh, military technologies, right? So those pathologies within modernity eventually give rise. They can't be solved, you know, adequately by modernity itself. It's an existential problem. And it, it provides in some ways the impetus for the emergence of the next major worldview along the timeline of human history, at least as far as we can see, which is this progressive postmodern worldview, right? So it's it emerges by pushing off against modernity, rejecting modernity, right? Turn on, tune in, drop out, right? It's, it's like a... a, a, a a liberating move away, you know, rejecting the rat race, rejecting modernity's pathologies and creating a new worldview, which has been doing for the last 50 years. But now that post-modernity, I mean, post-modernity will continue to mature way beyond our lifetimes. 
But it has reached a point in its cultural development where th this phase of its own pathologies beginning to emerge, its own existential problems beginning to emerge, be start to become evident. And so progressivism, one of progressivism's existential problems is its relative political impetacy. Now, I don't want to say that in blanket terms. I mean, clearly, postmodernism has achieved many, many important political goals. So it's not entirely politically impotent. But when we see a, a, a candidate as weak as Joe Biden, um, uh, you know, beating Bernie Sanders handily, then there, it's time for postmodernists to admit, okay, well, that's kind of an existential problem, right? Because Bernie's a stronger candidate in many mm -hmm. important ways, right? And so what's that problem? Well, one of the ways we can begin to analyze it is we can see that, look, <clears throat> catalyzing the emergence of a new worldview is extremely difficult, right? As those of us who are working in this integral space can certainly attest. But one of the ways, one of the, the, the ammunition that post-modernity uses to break out of modernity is this kind of rejection of all the things about modernity which are not sustainable, right? Environmental degradation, you know, world wars, right? The, the Dickensian nightmare of the industrial revolution. All of these, um, all of these pathologies are something that postmodernism says, you know, enough of this. We don't like this. It rejects it. It's that, that spirit of righteous rejection that is the wave that postmodernity rides in its own emergence as a historically significant worldview within the timeline of history. But that very, that very sort of light motif, if you will, that very sort of theme of postmodernism as, it, you know, as a, a sort of antithesis to modernity, right? Modernity is so strong, it's so big, it's the most, it's created more cultural evolution than any worldview before or since, I argue. And because of the dominance of modernity and its power, right, the only way to escape the, the inertia or the gravity of that power is to just say, piss on that shit, you know, fuck that shit. We're not going to stand for it anymore, right? So there's that kind of righteous rejection that is at the very soul of postmodernity, and it's kind of in that theme or that that um, you know that that stance of antithesis that that gives it its emergent power and that has characterized almost all of its cultural programs from the beginning. But that very stance of antithesis is leading to this existential problem of the rest of the culture saying you know, we can't embrace the antithesis because that, this is us, right? You're trying to erase our identities. You're trying to claim that Western civilization is a sinister criminal enterprise. And we don't, we can't go there, right? We're not willing to reject our heritage. We're not willing to reject the prosperous civilization that we've created. And so that very antithesis that's just baked into the bones of postmodernism means that it has a very difficult time, if not an impossible time, of bringing along the necessary people within modernity and even traditionalism that it needs to create an electoral electoral majority, and so this is this problem of being in the 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 mode of antithesis is an existential problem that can't be solved within that mode of antithesis. I mean, Hegel saw it all clearly from the beginning, and even though we might reject the simplified construct of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis for purposes of simplifying things in a podcast, we can see that pattern, right? That that's a pattern of evolution. You can see it at every level. You can see it a, a, within evolution as a whole, and you can see it at, at almost every step of evolution, right? So the, the, the biological technique of sexual reproduction is a perfect model of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, right? The female being the thesis, the antithesis being the male, 
and the synthesis being the offspring, um, that same pattern we can see in cultural evolution too, if we can look with um, developmental eyes. And so we can see that, that, that post-modernity marks a very important antithesis that we needed to break out of the unsustainable civilization that we created. But in order to bring about all the important gifts uh, and dignities of that progressivism stands for, then we need, need to, at least not as a whole, not as an entire nation, but we need another cultural system online and functioning that can facilitate the integration. That is the synthetic worldview of, of, uh, of this um, integral, you know, metamodern, postmodern, postprogressive, whatever you want to call it, whatever words end up being the accepted label in our culture, this worldview space that can very much identify with progressivism and, and, and yearn to see its values achieved in the culture we can also know, but, but to see that, we need a synthesis. We need to move from antithesis to synthesis in, uh, you know, the leading edge. I mean, within uh, business literature, there's a cliche about the trim tab. You may have heard it. Um, there's like a giant freighter and it's a it, ship and it's got a, a, a huge, a huge um, tiller on it, a huge, you know, uh, uh, um, piece of metal that turns the ship because the ship is so big and its rudder is so big, the rudder needs a rudder. In other words, to get the rudder to turn, they have to have a smaller rudder called a trim tab. And that trim tab turns one way, and that gets the rudder of the ship to turn the other way, and then that gets the ship to turn the other way. It's a little bit of a model of dialectics, if you will. And so th this integral perspective can act as a trim tab to help postmodernism turn the ship of Western civilization to a more inclusive and uh, world-centric political stance. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. I, I think that's a perfect segue, I think, of where we're at. I think a lot of, I, I know you identified uh, another wonderful article you put out that can be found on the Institute of Cultural Evolution is the polarizing the American mind, where you sort of identify this new left and a new right and what that synthesis can look like. Um, one of the things that I was wondering about. Uh, Steve, you wrote in that article sort of about how in 1990 when Newt Gingrich came online and that's sort of where you identify the hyperpolarization sort of increasing. But I want to quote you here. You talk about conservatives are playing a long game, happy to serve the beast and delighted by dysfunction, even when they control the government. For this reason, as liberals unwittingly conspire to turn American politics into a zero-sum game, conservatives win when they lose. So I guess my question for uh, yeah, that's a quote. That's not I didn't write that. I don't oh, necessarily agree yeah. with it, but it's an expression of how some people are thinking. Oh yes. Yeah. So I was wondering with this, you know, with this new um, with millennials or, or sort of these, and you sort of identify the the next generation of not, I guess, being so thick in the game with with what's going on. How 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 would you recommend that uh, we go about sort of altering or bringing on? Integral, the integral framework online in politics. Sure. Well, first, let me say that the, the, the paper that you quote, um, Depolarizing the American Mind, was written in 2014. Mm -hmm. and, and there's been a lot of political evolution, both, you know, both growth and decay since then. Things change, right? So that's why when Trump was elected in 2016, um, our strategies of envisioning a future left and a future right, that those were sort of uh, superseded by a new emergent, right? That this rise of Trumpism. 
And uh, beginning in, in 2017, I started writing developmental politics and it was just published uh, March 1st. And so that is a more, I think, um, developed analysis of what's going on and what the solutions uh, are than what I was writing about political polarization in 2014. Um, so, you know, that is the, the how we can bring this about. I think, you know, part of it is that the, the, the um, the structures that we have right now for gaining cultural traction are all somewhat contaminated by the commercial emphasis on popularity, right? I mean, Wilbur talks about this a little bit in his book, Trump and the Post-Truth World, how the new metric for truth is, is it popular? Which uh, makes it very difficult, I mean, in social media, for example, you know, even Reddit, like how popular is it, is whether it's good or not. That's a sort of you know, goodness, truth, and beauty become in some ways conflated with popularity, which puts a premium not only on conflict and, and uh, um, negative rhetoric, but it also puts a premium on the, sort of the lowest common denominator, right? And so we're trying to bring in um, an intellectually robust and philosophically uh, um, full uh, way of understanding politics and culture. And so we can't rely entirely on popularity um, you know, to, 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 you know, if we're waiting to see, you know, uh, 500,000 people viewing our podcasts, then we're in trouble because the social media won't send those people there because they're not seeing the triggers of popularity, the little indicators of popularity of virality, um, that currently drive what gets eyeballs at the moment, right? So we have, that's a, you know, it's, it's, it's not an unsurmountable problem, but it's something we need to acknowledge that integral is not popular. And it hasn't been, I mean, there was a surge of popularity in the 2000s, you know, that I was part of. Um, and I talk about why that ultimately, uh, you know, has, has subsided to a degree. There's not the same market for integral thinking that there was in, say, 2007. Um, but where we are now, I think, is, is probably healthy. I mean, if, if we were to imagine that this worldview has, um, you know, has larger forces in the universe that care about its emergence then we want to we want to build that emergence on strong leadership and it may be that the the time was not right the life conditions were not you know uh, potent and the leadership was not capable in the 2000s of of creating a foundation for the emergence of the inner worldview and so now in some ways we're we 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 we've gone from what could be called a movement to what's now just an intellectual community right so there's you know there's these conferences and there's people on every continent who are alive to integral ideas, and we're certainly attracted to it, but we're a very small intellectual community. And so there's been some interesting scholarship about the difference between a movement and an intellectual community. And um, I can just say that one, there are many things we can do, but one of the most important things we can do as an intellectual community of integralists or you know, post-postmodernists or whatever label we happen to find is most agreeable among us is to, is to create a social norm of, of, of a degree of solidarity and collegial cooperation, right? That doesn't mean we can't critique each other, but we have to guard against um, something that you see in almost every academic department. Freud labeled it as the, um, the narcissism of small differences. And that is when you have people who are working in a, a similar field, especially an intellectual field, and they have disagreements, those disagreements become magnified to the point where they hate each other. 
right? They, they, they dismiss each other in a very snobby way. And there's this kind of poo-pooing of anything that's not exactly, you know, your take on this larger intellectual field. And, and I've certainly seen that. I've, been, I've encountered it through the last 20 years that I've been an advocate of this integral perspective. And, you know, I can understand it. I can analyze it. I'll, I'll get into it a little bit more. But let me just say um, at first that th this, is a, this is sort of an emerging condition of intellectual communities and that we should know better as an intellectual community and not backbite each other or dismiss each other or ignore each other. I recommend that we have a certain camaraderie. Um, you know, there's this um, uh, great scene in that, um, in that uh, HBO special uh, on um, Samuel Adams, where Samuel Adams and his crew from um, uh, Massachusetts, the revolutionaries, are in Philadelphia. And uh, um, Benjamin Franklin arrives at the party. You know, he's, he's delivered in a sedan chair and he jumps out of the sedan chair and everybody recognizes he's a big celebrity. And he runs through the crowd, pushing people aside directly to go to the gentleman from Massachusetts. And he runs up to, you know, Samuel Adams and he shakes his hand and says, oh, not Samuel Adams, but... Um, John Adams? John Adams. Yeah, sorry. John Adams. And says, you know, the gentleman from Massachusetts, I'm so happy to meet you, and, and shakes his hand vigorously. And there's this sort of sense of like, man, we are revolutionaries and we're in this together. And it's very important that even though we are inevitably have differences, that we recognize each other and, and in a sense, establish that sense of, of um, supportive com camaraderie um, you know, that we don't uh, always see within integral circles. That's one of the failures of leadership, I think, uh, that, that has, you know, plagued the integral uh, worldview in its, in its nascent emergence. It's not really a cultural structure in any degree. It's just an intellectual community at the moment. Yeah. But one of the things that, that can help us overcome the narcissism of small differences such that we don't hate each other and we can support each other more accurately, even while we, you know, are our support for each other is conditional upon certain disagreements um, is that we can recognize how th there are lines of development uh, that have, that are converging in this integral space that come from different, you know, metaphysical frames or different lines of spirituality. And so in um, the presence of the infinite, my 2015 book, I talk about the three major kinds of spirituality in America, you know, at this time in history, the one is, of course, traditional religious spirituality, and then the other one is progressive spirituality, and then the third one is what I call secular spirituality. And every one of these major forms of spirituality are can be understood as lines of development that extend, or you know, tra the traditionalism begins at traditionalism and extends up through modernity, through postmodernity, and into integral. So there are people who still have loyalties to traditional religion who are nevertheless making meaning at an integral level or a postmodern level. Likewise, secular spirituality kind of begins with modernity, but it's a line of development. Each one of these lines has um, you know, very important, very wise people who, who are saying beautiful things that I agree with. And it also each one also has um, you know, pretty silly people, people who are, um, who are very dogmatic or fundamentalist about their line. Uh, and then you know, progressive spirituality too. It, has it begins in some ways at, at the postmodern level, but it's still a, a healthy line of development, or at least partially healthy, that grows into the integral space. So in the integral space, we see people who are coming from traditional spirituality, progressive spirituality, and secular spirituality, as well as evolutionary spirituality, which, as I argue in the book, 
is begins really at the at the integral level. It's kind of a new line that, that begins to emerge. But all of these lines have different metaphysical reality frames. And so there's a natural tendency carried forward from first tier to belittle the people who are not in your line, right? To think that they're dupes or they're stupid. And, and so one of the very important cultural achievements of progressive postmodernism, at least in the spiritual realm, is a degree of pluralism, healthy pluralism. Now, of course, the downside of that is anything goes, right? And it lets in all kinds of magical thinking, of course. I mean, we can sit here and criticize the New Age all day long and point out all of the fallacies of, of New Age spirituality. But not all progressive spirituality is, you know, uh, magical thinking, secret reading New Agers, just like all traditionalists are not fundamentalists and all, I mean, all people who are in that traditional religious line and, and all people who are in the secular spiritual line, they're not all, you know, hardcore materialists like Richard Dawkins. So in this realm of, of in this new emergent realm of, of integral uh, uh, discourse and integral culture, including its many branches, one of the things that I argue for is that we need to carry forward the achievement of green and have a degree of respectful pluralism regarding these different metaphysical frames. And while it's very important that all these lines of development purge magical thinking from their, uh, from their purview, and, and certainly magical thinking wherever it occurs deserves to be critiqued. But I would argue that the biggest form of magical thinking around today is that the universe is a complete accident. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I... Um, you know, I, I just kind of want to argue that if we're gonna if we're gonna build this integral worldview, we have to stop uh, the negativity or the ignoring among us and and create a sense of solidarity. Um, you know, one of the things, one of the ways that modernity gained traction is that it had these collegial um, associations, like the Royal Society of Science, and that there was bitter disagreement and politics and all kinds of nastiness within those associations. But at least they allowed for a, a place of common ground where people like Darwin could be discovered and championed and could gain traction. And so one of the ways we can do that is not, not by trying to just create a kind of a fuzzy green community, although that's good where you can get it. I think it has more to do with a more intellectually rigorous association of intervalists who can create a, a container of challenge and support where we're not just dissing each other, but actually can um, recognize and support each other. So, Steve, can I summarize this? I mean, you're saying, you know, most people don't want another worldview uh, sort of rammed down their throat or brought online, but you're definitely advocating that, whether you call it integral or metamodern or post-progressive, that maybe something else is emerging, in your opinion? Of course, yes, definitely. Okay. Something, so so post, post-modernism, right? It's a worldview. It's here. It's emerged over the last 50 years. Uh, you know, twenty years ago, you could maybe just dismiss it as a form of counterculture, but now it's become a counter-establishment, right? It, it, it's 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 clearly emergent as a cultural structure, and so the fact that we have postmodernism and we have this theoretical understanding of the uh, structure of cultural emergence and its its you know worldview systems, we can begin to say, okay, postmodernism is here. All of us practically come out of postmodernism. I mean, in other words, it's hard to get an integral perspective if you haven't first been somewhat acculturated within progressivism. But um, folks like me can see that progressivism is an important step, but we need to take the next step because we can't just rest in the antithesis. And so that means a, a, working to build and to champion and a garden for uh, this, this next level of emergence. 
and it may occur in a robust way in our lifetime or it may not, right? We can look at history and see all kinds of examples of the progressive worldview uh, emerging as something less than a historically significant cultural structure, but nevertheless an interesting movement or like, like transcendentalism in the 1840s, right? It had many of the elements that we would recognize as postmodern today, um, but it would take, you know, a substantial amount of time. Um, the tr transcendentalist movement made contributions to the subsequent emergence of progressivism, but it wasn't a direct line. You know, it wasn't as if transcendentalism is simply what we now recognize as post-modernity. So we can see that the, this current intellectual community, this fractious intellectual community that we're in, could be the beginnings of this new worldview. It could be the heralding of it. Or it could be a, a, an interesting movement like transcendentalism that ultimately is going to have to wait decades before there's a historically significant emergence of, of this post-postmodern worldview. Yeah, really, um, really well said, Steve. And I, I love your the comment on the narcissism of small differences. I think your critique of the integral community really hits the nail on the head. And I think we can see a lot of similar problems in certain uh, progressive political movements and so forth. But it gets me to the, one of the questions I wanted to ask, which is about the importance of seeing how, as you, as you said, right, there are, um, there are different lines that are converging through the integral community. And so we have different expressions of our ontological or metaphysical notions of reality, and that can sometimes cause conflicts. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about the importance of like remixing certain values or worldviews and expressing them at a newer or at a, at a, a higher level and the importance of that in maybe appeasing people with more conservative or reactionary tendencies. So, for example, I look at someone um, like Jordan Peterson as taking a lot of traditional values or at least channeling the spirit of traditionalism in, through his uh, lectures and so forth. But he remixed them with like Jungian archetypes and other psychological insights regarding personality and, and so forth. And that had a new appeal to a, a new audience of maybe like young men, for example. Uh, so it wasn't totally like a re, uh, like a regression to go to church and become a, a, the stereotypical tr you know traditionalist living in like rural Mississippi or whatever, right? Um, so do you have any thoughts on how certain worldviews or or the values or identities or content of these worldviews can be expressed in in different ways? Sure. Wow, that's another excellent question. Um, yes, precisely. That's what the this values integration method. Uh, argues for or tries to provide a method for. Um, and, and that is, when, when we go, I, at, earlier I mentioned these levels where, you know, the bedrock values are, are at the base level and that while interests, political interests or issues, it may be impossible to reach agreement, it becomes easier to reach at least something like an agreement at the level of values because to the extent that something's an intrinsic value, that it's really deep and really important, then that's something that everyone in some ways can potentially share, right? So if you're living in Western culture right now, you may reject religion or traditional values, but you're nevertheless using them because the entire structure of Western civilization is in a sense uh, relying on and using the, those previous value accomplishments of history, right? Like if, if we have a conception of this cultural situation we're in as an ecosystem and have these different levels, just like in a, in a biological ecosystem, you have these different levels and each one is interdependently contributing to the whole. Um, 
it, it, it takes a bit of a philosophical work to see it, but I argue that, that traditional values are, are at least the, the, the intrinsic ones, the really important ones, that, that even as we transcend traditional religion, even as we leave the pathologies of traditionalism behind in our uh, you know, historical progress, there are achievements of traditionalism which form a, a foundation of our culture which uh, we uh, dissolve at our peril, right? We can't dissolve a social norm of fair play, even though, um, you know, there are plenty of modernists who don't play fair, plenty of traditional, you know, plenty of people. There, in every human institution, in every human endeavor, you have bad actors. At least for now, we're going to have to deal with that. And you can see the results or the fruits of that bad action in anything, any human institution we point to, government, you know, business, religion, uh, uh, academia, there are negatives. And so that's just sort of the nature of the human condition. But to be able to tease apart the dignities from the disasters, to be able to, to, to tune in to what traditionalism continues to contribute, what, which of those bedrock values that come from our historical heritage that we are using, whether we like it or not, right? That, that if we're going to be good people, we can't completely discard those values. That begins to give us an opening for appreciating those values. And once we can appreciate those values, then that allows us to be uh, incrementally more sympathetic to our political opponents, right? So in other words, if, if, there's, if we can't recognize any good on the other side of the inevitable value polarity, which we find ourselves in, then we're sabotaging our own value-creating capacity, right? Our own political position uh, is going to be stymied if we don't um, understand that our values are in some ways interdependent with uh, these other values in this structure of uh, dynamic polarities, which characterizes the substance of this um, cultural ecosystem. So, so how can we... Um, integrate traditional values? How can we integrate the, the various forms of modernist values? Well, it goes back to this perspective that I advocated regarding being outside and above the culture. So if you're in the progressive worldview and you see the, uh, you see, you know, conservatives and traditionalists as evil Nazis, you know, it's important to acknowledge that certainly some of them are evil Nazis, right? They're there. You can see them. They're pretty visible. But at the same time, there are millions and millions of people of good sense and good faith who have those earlier worldviews as their identity, and that if we recognize that there are bedrock, positive, permanent, indestructible values that are uh, there, that these people are using to make their identity, then we can begin to uh, we can begin to see how they are us, at least at some basic level. You know, this this uh, new age um, admonition, right, that we're all one people. Or that there's no, I mean, it's not new age, but but sort of the progressive spirituality's idea of no separation or oneness. That's a very important spiritual teaching that I ascribe to. And if we're going to apply that politically, then that makes us have to sort of examine our own othering of, of whatever other we can identify as the problem. And so it's, it's, an, it's having enough um, uh, agility in our perspective to be able to uh, uh, tease apart the dignities from the disasters is an ongoing process. It's it's a uh, it's it's not a stance that is stable or unmoving. It's a little bit like the difference in going between a, a still photograph and a motion picture, right? The motion picture is moving, and and when we're using 
integral consciousness, we're looking at these polarities as going, it's iterative, back and forth, recursive, right? We're saying, okay, there's values there and then there's pathologies there, and there's values here and there's pathologies here. And so that's what this challenge and support operation looks like when it comes to um, working with the, uh, the, the dynamic polarities of values that are currently stuck, but which can be worked with more skillfully and effectively to achieve um, you know, the next phase of our political development. Well said. Yeah, that's um, that's really great, Steve. So, I one other question I, I really wanted to get to you on this get to on this podcast with you is about how to really take this brilliant work that you're you're doing and and some of the ideas from your book and really coalesce it into an actual cultural movement where we have a, a critical number of Americans engaging in this process, maybe even bring, having groups that are facilitated by someone trained in this uh, values integration polarity management method where we can lead groups of maybe let's say 10 liberals and 10 conservatives through this process. So do you have, do you have a certain vision of how this can really uh, bleed into the mainstream zeitgeist and, and turn into an actual cultural movement with a large number of people practicing this technique? Sure. Well, first, you know, I think that there's value in um, retail politics, right? Bringing people together, facilitating groups, um, uh, having dialogues, uh, and generally trying to convene local uh, sites of, uh, of, of cultural reconciliation, right? And in some ways, that's what um, that conservative group, Better Angels, is trying to do, right? They, they're a nonprofit, and they're, they're focused on political polarization, and they have partnered with a um, kind of a workshop giving green psychologist. And they carefully select uh, people on the right and people on the left. And they bring them together in weekend workshops that are facilitated. And they get people to talk to each other and have civil dialogue and recognize their mutuality. And, and I, think, I think, you know, all that's important work. But I, I don't think that's ultimately um, the most effective strategy we can pursue. So, and, and you know, again, there are many, there, there's, there's a, an entire front of development and, and thousands of different ways that can work and that need to be pursued. And, and creating dialogue using polarity management methods within select political groups is certainly, a, 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 I'd say, like a worthwhile thing to try and to, and to pursue. Um, but... Ultimately, I think the thing that's going to be most effective, the thing I'm trying to do now, is to increase the visibility of this perspective, right? To make it, to make it more, um, to give it a voice that people start to become familiar with, right? Like, so there's, there's, um, there are many um, political voices out there, political perspectives, political ideologies that are on, they're talked about among the commentariat, right? Within the pundit sphere, these political uh, perspectives are um, many of them gain, have gained success because they're taken into account, right? So for example, uh, you know, the feminist analysis is, is a kind of um, important political perspective, which over the last several decades has gained traction. So you see academic journals, they almost always have, when it, if there's a compilation, you know, a compendium of articles, they almost always have someone who's coming from a, a feminist perspective, right? Or, or, you know, we could sort of identify many different similar interest groups that have their own speciality and that are given deference and, and are influential and are respected 
um, and have gained some have made some progress. I think it, as a as a first step, like that we could look at in the next few years, is helping this integral political perspective, this this way of seeing things, this politics of culture, um, start to gain traction in, um, in in mainstream discourse, right? And so that can happen through. Uh, it, it, there, there needs to be greater, greater numbers of people, right? There needs to be more momentum in the movement. There needs to be more money behind it, right? In other words, we need, um, we need sponsors. We need, we need um, uh, patrons and philanthropists who will recognize the importance of this and fund it because we can't rely entirely on popularity to fund our way because it's new and challenging and, and intellectually deep. So, so I want to... Um, I want to commend any effort because I certainly don't claim to know what the ultimate successful method is going to be. Right now, I've written a book. I'm writing op-eds. I have a think tank. I have some sponsors. I want them to give the think tank more money. <laughs> I want them to, uh, to to back this more robustly so that it, it can have a bigger voice, so that we can put on more events and, and have uh, people full-time working to um, to put this message out there. I mean, there, there are plenty of examples of um, perspectives that have gained traction in this way uh, uh, through think tanks that were funded by, um, you know, by, by wealthy people or by institutional philanthropies. So I'm not saying that it's just a matter of getting funded, but funding would, is definitely necessary and will definitely help. Um, you know, we can also uh, uh, offer solutions that like, so for example, we now have this problem of hyperpolarization. In, in 2014, the problem was there, but the only people who seemed to be particularly concerned about it were center-left Democrats. Um, and, and that was my experience, organizing events, uh, elite events around political polarization in 2014. Many of them bought into the soothing story that was told at the time that the American populace wasn't really uh, that polarized, that the political parties were hyperpolarized, but that Americans were, were you know, they, they were not divided in, in such a stark way and that the parties had seen it in their interest to sort people into these categories. And so we'd been artificially sorted and all we had to do was break out of this kind of self-interested animosity that was perpetrated by the political parties and recognize that as Americans, we're in more agreement than we realize, right? Well, that was a theory, but now we have Trumpism and that theory has been somewhat quashed, right? No, no, there, there is a real schism and it's not just being artificially foisted on us by political parties. It's, it's a deep divide. It's a rip in the fabric of American society, right? So this is a, this is a gnarly problem of which Trumpism is, a, is a, um, a symptom, as I argued. And so this gives us an opportunity to say, look, we have a solution to this that nobody else has. We have a way of approaching this that's not political centrism. Because that's the sort of the knee-jerk reaction of the cottage industry of nonprofit organizations that have arisen to address political polarization. Almost all of them kind of come back to this idea of, of um, civil dialogue. And right? civil dialogue's great. I mean, let's promote that. That's one of the ways that we can, you know, make things better. But ultimately, I don't think it's enough to get the job done because it's not just a matter of talking to each other. Um, we, we need to, we can't just, we, we can't solve hyperpolarization through a better process. We ultimately need to address the content of our disagreement, which is about values. And, and those values are, are in this, um, they've flown apart, right? There's no, there's no, there's only challenge and no support. 
So we need a perspective that's outside and above that can recognize that every one of these worldviews has dignities and disasters. That perspective is not visible uh, to people in the mainstream. This developmental perspective that takes you from 2D to 3D is missing in the analysis of our best and brightest political commentators. And so part of it is challenging these people and, 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 and showing them how they are lacking a developmental perspective and how that's creating a kind of of, of uh, worldview-situated political myopia, which is part of the problem. So, I mean, you know, progressive people like Ezra Klein, right, in his book, he's talking about social science and why we're polarized, and then he basically comes down to we're polarized because of demographic displacement and racism. And while certainly that's part of the problem, I think he's missing the larger, uh, the larger stretching out the larger uh, evolution and the emergence of postmodernity and all of the important values that that has, has brought and all of the cultural threat that that represents to modernists and traditionalists. I mean, this, this threat is felt not only by conservatives and people on the right, the threat, the cultural threat of, of postmodernism, its kind of stance of antithesis is the reason why Joe Biden is going to be the Democratic candidate because that polarity exists not only across the left-right divide, it also exists within um, within the left, right? Because you have post-modernity and modernity, you have liberal modernists and progressive post-modernists, and they represent two different worldviews that are dialectically separated. And so that creates a polarity, a sub-polarity within the left that in some ways is just as, you know, a uh, uh, staunchly opposed and, and potentially stuck as the larger left-right polarity. And until we can create a relationship of challenge and support within the left itself, then, then I would predict that progressivism will continue to be somewhat frustrated in its efforts to bring about you know, a, a, a more caring and inclusive uh, form of politics. Well said. Um, so for, for my part, I think um, what we're probably going to need to see and what uh, Matt and Ryan and I, and I have been talking about is the need for the left to <laughs> to transcend itself in a certain sense. Um, I'm just going to drop one example that I think has been very interesting and insightful. And uh, actually, it's called a book by Harvey J.K. I'm not sure if you've read him. He's a historian. But uh, it's called Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again. And one of the things that he's been mentioning actually about the left is uh, the, the desire for it to appeal to tradition, to the history, for instance, of, of Bernie connecting to the legacy of FDR, to, a, to be able to reach across uh, different value spheres in that sense. So I think, I don't know, it, it, it seems like the progressive left as one polarity is really going to have to learn to accommodate these other value spheres in order to um, overcome this bifurcation. Um, and my last point about that is just that uh, what seems to be an issue, the frustration here, right, is like in the polling, everyone seems to agree with, okay, yeah, Medicare for all sounds great. Yes, uh, wealth inequality should be reformed. So, so the values seem to be kind of shared across the voter demographic, at least when it comes to Democratic voters, but the way in which we're approaching it and articulating it and voicing it and bridging the gap with these different demographics seems to be, there seems to be something missing there. And I think you've highlighted it very well. Um, yeah, certainly. Well, that's in some ways um, for, for a, a 
progressive person, you know, who sort of who, who gets much of his energy from rejecting the evident pathologies of the mainstream, like Bernie Sanders. I mean, I mean, Bernie is in some ways a hero, and, and I I want to honor him and not try to put him in a box. You know, I mean, I don't want to stereotype him. I want to sort of give him the honor that he deserves. That he's he's not just a caricature of a cultural structure. But nevertheless, you know, for purposes of talking about these these polarities and these the, these forms of cultural evolution, again, we're using orienting generalizations, right? So progressivism is 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 um, empowered by the energy of of antithesis, as I mentioned and argued. And in order for it to uh, grow, in order whether it means maturing as a more synthetic structure on its own terms or uh, giving birth to its own uh, you know, dialectical counterpart in this integral worldview. Either way, I'll take it, right? How, whatever it takes to make America, you know, a more loving and welcoming and inclusive place, whether that means the, the further maturation of the progressive worldview or the emergence of the post-progressive worldview, um, either way, it's the same goal. And so the, the, the goal of doing that is to better integrate, to better recognize the incredible achievements and, and foundational platform that modernity has given us. And certainly somebody like FDR uh, is, FDR is a modernist, right? He's a liberal, he's a left-leaning mm -hmm. left modernist, he's a compassionate modernist, a very wise and you know one of the greatest leaders of America has, has ever had. And certainly trying to tie um, uh, the goals of progressivism and the, sort of the political trajectory of progressivism as an extension of the compassionate politics of, the, of uh, um, FDR, uh, you know, that, that's a good move to make. But again, there's some value content that can't just be um, glossed over, right? We, we, we have to reckon with the antithetical expressions of postmodernity and its challenge to modernity, right? Which again is, is a good thing, right? Challenging modernity is what's next in history. But that challenge can't stand on its own. I mean, I'm returning to the same thing. We, we need to move from antithesis to synthesis if we're gonna bring about the more progressive society that we wanna see, not again by everyone, but among enough uh, leaders, enough uh, uh, activists, enough political people, you know, they have to appreciate that this synthesis is, is a, a level of, of values, identity, and culture. And in order to do that, um, there's a certain degree of recognition of, of progressivism's own pathologies, right? So each worldview, according to the, you know, the theory, each worldview has a hard time as a blind spot regarding its own pathologies. It may say that we have bad actors among us and they're racist or they're greedy or they're, you know, whatever the pathologies are, but that's not what we're about. And that's a reasonable argument, but ultimately the pathologies that exist in a culture are that culture's responsibility. And so an important part of, of making this move to this outside and above perspective or from whatever worldview provides your cultural center of gravity is to own those pathologies, right? And so integral, if it's gonna get this outside and above perspective, it has to own the pathologies of every worldview. It has to own traditionalism, traditionalism's pathologies and, and recognize that those are, you know, something that need to be worked on and continuously uh, addressed and pruned away, um, modernity. And so progressivism, it has its own pathologies. Uh, progressives have a very hard time admitting to those pathologies or seeing them other than trivial or, or you know, inevitable and, and not something that, that is actually a political problem that they need to own. 
And so as I argue both in these, you know, in shorthand way, uh, in these little videos that I've been making, as well as in, um, you know, a, a more robust way in, in the book itself, among the pathologies of the progressive worldview are the natural outworking of its stance, stance of antithesis, which is anti-modernism and reverse patriotism. And again, these, are, these, these pathologies are understandable, right? They're inevitable, right? You can't move away. You can't create, you know, a, a rejectionistic antithesis without inevitably occurring some of these pathologies. Every step of evolution brings new problems that require further evolution for it to solve. So one of the ways that progressive culture can mature on its own terms without having to adopt an integral worldview, but one of the ways that the, the integral worldview can or this integral perspective can help postmodernism, can, can challenge postmodernism to in a way of supporting it, is by pointing out that is that postmodernists, one of the most low-hanging fruits for their own political progress and their own their own political influence. And one of the ways to make somebody like Bernie Sanders an even stronger candidate is, is to acknowledge these pathologies, own them, work on them, admit them, and create social norms within the, the culture that, that doesn't just laugh at these things or, or take a kind of a snide satisfaction in, in those things, right? So, you know, think of somebody like Chris Hedges, right? So he's a hero to many people within progressivism, and I understand he, he carries forward that righteous condemnation in, in a powerful way, and many of his critiques are true, right? And, 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 and deserve to be outraged about. You know, like this bumper sticker around uh, Boulder. You know, if 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 you're not outraged, you're not paying attention, right? So that that sort of outrage, uh, that moral uh, um, uh, seriousness that progressivism brings, that's one of its strengths, right? But it, it tied directly to that strength is this downside, which alienates many needed supporters in the rest of the society. And so somebody like Hedges has a role to play, just like Bernie Sanders has a role to play. But ultimately, when people read Chris Hedges, they think, oh, my God, this guy is, you know, he's a menace to society. I mean, if you're a modernist or a traditionalist, you see voices like that as being deeply threatening. So I don't necessarily want to shut up those voices. Again, they have a role to play. But at the same time, I also want to see those voices of protest taken in stride so that there can be created progressive social norms that recognize that, that modernity is not something that can just be crushed or, or it's not just a sinister criminal enterprise. It's got pathologies that are certainly sinister and even criminal, but it's also um, created incredible cultural evolution, incredible progress that all four of us are using right now, right? That we that we be hypocrites to deny that we're benefiting from. So, um, you know, I think it's it's a matter of, of of owning those pathologies, recognizing them more clearly, and doing just that is part of what enacts this perspective of being outside and above, right? I mean, that's what Keegan's work is all about: is making subject into object. So if you're if you're a progressive, that's your subject, that's who you are. So if you can you can retain that that subjective identity and that worldview awareness, but you can make it even better. You can make it more effective. You can be a champion of its values by being able to also do the important move of stepping outside that worldview, making that subject into object, if only temporarily, if only as a political technique, so that you can be self-critical enough to continue growing.
right? It's the growth that got us here and it's the growth that's gonna get us out of this problem. And in order to grow, um, the next opportunity is to take this newly emerging perspective, which is outside and above, which is integral, which is post-progressive, which is, you know, et cetera. Again, brilliantly articulated. Thank you, Steve. Um, I don't know if anyone else has any questions or any, any closing comments, but where, where can we find your work online? And um, uh, where can we connect with you? Sure. Well, thanks for asking. Um, well, the, the headquarters for my work and for my latest book, Developmental Politics, is on my website, stevemackintosh.com. And that includes um, not just extensive excerpts from the book and, and many videos and, and other articles and a, a blog. I mean, there's all kinds of content and all kinds of different framings and ways for people to um, spend time with these ideas, you know, and think about them. Uh, so stevemackintosh.com. The other place that I can point people to is the, thing, the website of the Institute for Cultural Evolution, which is uh, culturalevolution.org. And one of the highlights of that website is this, um, is this character development exercise, which takes the, um, the application of integral philosophy to virtue ethics, uh, which I do in chapter eight of developmental politics, and makes an exercise out of it. Makes a, you know, an internet quiz, if you will. There are 10 questions which help you discern your triple ethical duty, right, to self, to others, and to the, whatever you consider to be transcendent. And then it'll ask you to select uh, seven virtues from a potential 49 virtue terms. And, it, and the exercise results in a, um, an attractive chart, like a PDF that you can print out and put on your refrigerator that acts as a practice tool for character development, for virtues as a spiritual practice. And so people don't have to, to grok the philosophy or read the book to get a sense of what virtues might mean to them by just doing this 10-minute exercise. And that's at culturalevolution.org. Um, you know, and then, of course, there's, there's the, the monopoly of Amazon where, uh, you know, that, that is 99% of all sales of, of developmental politics takes place. That place is its own cultural battleground because um, Amazon in their monopoly power are very selective about which reviews they allow to be put up, right? So I've had many colleagues, I'm not, these people are not associated with me in commercially, but they've tried to put up reviews on Amazon and have been denied for reasons that the monopoly does not see fit to explain. <laughs> you know, so I've had probably 15 people review my book, but there's only six people that are that Amazon's allowed to post a review. I don't understand how that's the case. But again, when you're dealing with a monopoly, you don't get an explanation. You don't deserve an explanation. So again, I'm kind of ranting about that. But let me just say, you know, if people want to support the movement, one of the things they can do is buy the book, right? 10 bucks on Kindle. Buy the book and, and, and read the book and share the book and maybe even post a positive comment on the book on the point of purchase in the monopoly. Well, Thank you very much, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting point about Amazon. And uh, I know, I think we're just scratching the surface on, on this, this very large issue and definitely would love to have you back on because we're obviously going through interesting times. Because I think another angle, too, is the role of corporations in politics and how that plays a part in all of this that I definitely think probably deserves a whole other podcast. Uh, but thank Sure. I, I'm pro-business, but only because I think it can be significantly improved. I mean, there's certainly, like I mentioned, every institution, including business, has pathologies. 
And because business is so kind of central and powerful in our lives, its pathologies are magnified. So it's easy to see the corporate world only for its, its evil side. Um, and indeed, that's something that, that we have a political duty to point out and fight against. But I also think that, uh, we, you know, that, that business can be, has been, and will be a force for good. And like modernity itself, it's something that we can um, improve rather than discard. Um, so that's a good discussion. I'd love to have that with you. Um, I have a new book coming out in September that I've co-authored with John Mackey and Carter Phipps. It's called Conscious Leadership. And that's very much about how um, people in the world of business can um, become more culturally intelligent and have greater integrity and begin to recognize that business isn't just about profit, that it should be a force of service and good for our society. That book's being published by Penguin. So that should, um, you know, increase the visibility. Um, but I can also point people to the Daily Evolver podcast by my brother and friend Jeff Salzman. Uh, his podcast, dailyevolver.com, uh, has excellent um, um, segments that, that try to uh, uh, highlight voices within the integral world, including yours, Jeremy. I enjoyed uh, the recent podcast you did with Jeff. Um, and as Jeff, Jeff's one of my um, you know, patrons and, and a member of the board of the Institute for Cultural Evolution. So he's been very helpful in trying to get this word out there. Um, but ultimately, you know, that is, if, if people are going to be interested and, and learn more, not just about my work, but about all the emerging important voices in this, um, this post-postmodern space, um, then I would enjoy invite them to, to kind of... In, join the community, this intellectual community, by contributing to it, by uh, becoming an audience for it, and hopefully by creating a, a collegial environment whereby we can recognize each other and support each other in a, in a friendly and even perhaps loving way. I'm all for that. I'm all for that. Let's definitely keep in touch. Uh, let's have, have you back with, uh, with Carter. I think that would be great to do in the fall. And uh, let's definitely keep the correspondence going and, and help to build this uh, Republic of Letters, right? Great. Well, congratulations on the launch of a new podcast. I think that's one of the things we can do, and you're doing it. So good for you. Good for the three of you. And um, I look forward to uh, you know enjoying further episodes of, of this um, interesting new podcast. Awesome. Thank you. Steve. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you.